Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Okay, let's start. Um, so, you know, uh has been using a commentary for this series called Romans Disarmed. And, uh, you know, I think that applies to a lot of scriptures at times. When you approach them, they can be difficult. Like they can be sort of challenging and, and push you and you can maybe feel uncomfortable with it or dislike it. Um, you know, maybe like young adults with their parents sometimes. I know sometimes when I'm goofy with my kids or I do something, they'll say to me, Dad, you're being too much or you're a lot. I don't know if anybody's ever... But I feel like when you read Paul, sometimes you're like, take two steps back, you're a lot. Like you're a bit much right now. Uh, Yeah. So, and this idea was driven home to me a couple weeks ago when I was chatting with a newcomer to Awaken, Riley. And so Riley and I were having a nice chat, and they mentioned reading 1 Timothy 2, kind of their journey, and that, you know, 1 Timothy 2 is all about women learning in quietness and submission, and they read through this, read, read the passage, and thought to themselves, you mean I'm supposed to get married and just pop out children, and this is my future? And then she said, kind of declared loudly to me, I don't think so. <laughs> And I thought, that's a good hermeneutical approach. I really appreciated that because I grew up with a very strong sense uh, growing up that you, the text was right in its most literal sense. And whatever you felt or thought was sort of irrelevant because the text was the boss. And so maybe Paul can be a lot, but maybe sometimes our reading practices can be a lot. And they can sort of push us or we feel like we don't have voice or opportunity to kind of express who we are in that exchange, but that's not the way it is. So I like, I like Riley's response, I don't think so. I think that's a good way to read. Um, so to the text today, we're going to read Romans 5, 1 to 11. And so I just have Romans 1 and 2 on here, so I'll just read the text and you can listen along as I read the rest of it. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have, and the, yeah, Romans 5, Justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man or person, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. God bless the reading of his word. I'm reading, that might have sounded weird, I'm reading an NASB Bible, so I apologize if anything sounded a bit odd. Um, But here we have the first two verses. Um, And I thought, when I read these two verses, the first thing I think of is Martin Luther the Reformer. I don't know if anybody else thinks that. So I thought I'd present these verses for us in the spirit of Amy, uh, who had us singing German a couple weeks ago. So there you go. That's just for you. So you can really take that into your heart of Luther hearts. Um, as most of us know, if you know anything about Martin Luther, his story's pretty a standard story of like a lot of people, but he's kind of, it was a big, it was a big seismic story in his personal life that kind of started a flame in his heart. And it was not just an individualistic thing. It just kind of exploded in Europe, the area and this kind of new insight about grace through verses like these, through the book of Romans. He was tortured. He kind of tortured it. He had a confessor, Johann uh, von Staupitz, who he would always go to him. And Luther's problem was, like sometimes uh, evangelicals have this problem with scrupulosity. And that's just kind of the, I'm evaluating every thought, every movement, every action to the point in such a self-conscious way that I become kind of debilitated. Maybe it's like kind of a really high form of anxiety. Um, and so this is what Luther was dealing with. All, and he'd, he'd confess to his buddy, Johann, and he'd leave, and he'd think something leaving, and he'd go back in. Oh, i got to say one more thing because I don't want to be like in this bad place with God. Uh, but then he had this breakthrough. He realized that forgiveness or justification came simply through faith. That's it. Uh, and, and it was huge. This was mass, massive, this Luther moment, and massive moment for the Reformation Church. It was a body blow against the ecclesiological power of the Catholic Church because they kind of held the reins or the access to forgiveness and justification uh, within their hands, within their polity. And so, so this was wild. It was a wild, this kind of independent personal experience was kind of like a wild outlier outside of the way things were being done in uh, Christianity at that time. Um, And so then, so these passages like Romans 5 are really powerful. And maybe you're like me, I love Romans 5, 5. I think that's one just great verse for me. I think everybody has their kind of consolation verses you know, maybe when you're having a panic attack, you can kind of go breathe. And But I love Romans 5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So that's a verse of consolation. That's a consoling verse. So we have Luther. But let's go back to the social situation, the communal group situation in the Roman church. There was a division between the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul's writing here, and Philip Esler, the scholar, says it this way. 
He says, Paul is attempting in his writing in this book to reshape the identity of the congregation in Rome in the wake of ethnic tensions between Judean and non-Judean Christ believers. I don't know about you, but when I hear the phrase ethnic tensions, it's just scary. It's just a scary phrase, even in our times, because of all the violence that often comes along with those things when we hear that kind of stuff in our world or on the news or whatever. And there is a bit of tension here in the text in Romans 5, because the theology of Romans 5, what Paul is saying, there's what Paul is saying, like kind of all this theology stuff that can be a bit of, feel again, it feels like, Paul, you're a bit, I'll step back, please step back. But, so there's what Paul is saying, but there's what he's doing. What is he trying to do through this text in the church? And what he's trying to do is underline their identity as a community. Who are you as a community? That's a great question for any, any church to work through. And I think it's easy to see the divisions in the community, right? You'd have these Jewish people who, you know, they would say, oh, we have like the book of the law. We've memorized all this stuff. We have all our feasts. We have these purity things we go through. We, we have a temple. We have this whole system. So entering into this Jesus stuff, we've kind of got a leg up on you guys, you, you Gentiles. The Gentiles, on the other hand, they were in Rome, so there's many gods there, and it's a pretty cosmopolitan, I don't know if we'd call it cool, but it's cosmopolitan in their time. Uh, and there's the pagan god Jupiter, who they believe controlled the universe. There was Mars, the god of war, Juno, the goddess of, uh, of women, Minerva, the goddess of war, wisdom, and skill. You know, when I read these, I feel like they're the names of characters in so many books and movies now but they were gods in ancient Rome, so just so you know. Um, so I think it's easy to see that division. Jewish people kind of on one side, Gentile people on the others. And it's sometimes hard for different groups to get along. And this is not just a Christ, Christian problem that Paul is kind of pressing his finger on. This is a human problem. So I have some great Paul Simon lyrics any, any Paul Simon fans? Oh, yes. Awesome. So this song is called How Can You Live in the Northeast? Anybody know that song? Yeah, it's a good song. So Paul Simon sang this, and it's a very wistful song, and it kind of encompasses this human condition. He says, he's singing, he says, how can you live in the Northeast? You know, that's weird. Who would live up there in the Northeast? How can you live in the South? How can you build on the banks of a river when the flood water pours from the mouth? And so people not understanding, why do you live here? Why do you live there? Then he goes on, he says, how can you be a Christian? How can you be a Jew? How can you be a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Hindu? It's a good rhyme there. Uh, really wanted to lean into that. Uh, and then he says, how can you? And it's the final line I'll hear, I'll, I'll recite. He says, how can you tattoo your body? Why do you cover your head? How can you eat from a rice bowl? The holy man only breaks bread. But then he kind of has this sweet, bittersweet uh, refrain. How can you? How can you? How can you? It's really in 
like I feel that song, like I kind of, I, I resonate in there at times. And so Paul is talking to the people in Romans, in Rome in 56 and 57 AD, yet he is also talking about a common human reaction throughout time. Paul the Apostle is not wistful like Paul Simon. Paul Simon's nice. He stands at a perfect distance from you, and he's very respectful, and there's good boundaries. Uh, but Paul the Apostle's not quite that way, because, and I wonder if it's because he sees that there is violence, anger, and dark judgment between people in this ancient world. Paul places the angry fissures and cracks that exist between people under the category of sin. Not personal culpability, but this power. A power in the world called sin. Beverly uh, Gaventa says it this way. She says, describing this, she says, The difficulty arises when we notice Paul does not confine his comments about sin to human behavior to sins as misdeeds, omitted deeds, and even perverted thoughts and plans. Instead, in Romans in particular, sin is sin. Not a lowercase transgression, not even a human disposition or a flaw in human nature, but an uppercase power that enslaves humankind and stands over and against God. So all humanity stands under or suffers under this power of sin to warp us, to distort our humanity, to look down on each other, and the violent and deathly, and even, we might say, the demonic kind of discourses that get out there. We just spent, as already has been noted in the service, we've spent Friday thinking about um, how the public and also majority church discourses about First Nations people led to a genocide. In good old, can you know, I grew up, you know, Canada was like, everybody said thank you, and you, everybody went out their front door and said hi-dee-ho to their neighbor, and everybody was really polite, and this is kind of my self-understanding of Canada, is we are a polite, kind, kind of country. But then we have this other layer, another discourse that's going on. Does this outline for us how deathly and deadly language and discourses can be. Think simply of the language of the doctrine of discovery. It's a doctrine. You know, that's the, like that's the church self-reflection when we think about ourselves too and churches can think we're, we're all great or we have the gospel or we, we sort of own God or own Jesus or something and we can hold that above or against other people. But we have this, and, and this idea of doctrines being good things, but you have this doctrine, it kind of has that external veneer of like something that's okay or good or healthy, but underneath it, there's just some decay and darkness and evil. And so what can be done? Well, Paul says in Romans 5, 6, this, but at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So we learn a couple things are about our identity here when we see that Christ dies not just for our individual sin, and this is what I wanted to say. We People sometimes get sort of trapped in the individualist side of this with Luther. It's like this is all about me and God and getting forgiveness and just relieving my own sense of guilt and all that kind of stuff. But he's actually expanding this. That's Luther. Paul is actually expanding this 
category way wider to the sin as a power that we're all caught in, like this big web, and we're all sucked into this, a thing like doctrine of discovery, or kind of discourse about a certain group of people. So the first thing we learn here from this verse is, first of all, we are sinners. That's a, that's a brand new idea. Never been said before. Um, but what did Paul say here in verse 5 and 6? He said, Christ died for the ungodly. Can you imagine how the Jewish part of that church in Rome would have taken that language? We're not ungodly. But he says, he says that to both of them. But Paul is really saying to the Jews in Rome, you're not that special. You're not as righteous and moral as you think you are. You, like the Gentiles, are ungodly. In fact, Paul already did this in chapter 3, and it's, I'll just read the first couple of verses here because he kind of plays a little bit of a rhetorical game with the Jewish people here in this whole big letter that the church is reading. So he says in verse 1 and 2, then what advantage has the Jew in this situation? Or what is the great benefit of circumcision? And he says, it's great in every respect. So he kind of does this rhetoric where he says, yeah, you are the superior group. You are, you have this advantage. But then chapter three, just, then he just tears them down for the next nine verses. He just, this very challenging depiction of what sin is. And when he ends it, he ends up at verse nine and he says this, what shall we conclude then? Do we, and he's saying the Jews, have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Again, not our sinner, like personal culpability. We're all caught in this big power, and we're all, we all struggle with extracting ourselves from it. If we didn't get that, he goes on in 322, and he says this, there's no difference between the Jew and Gentile. How would that, if you think you're an exceptional person, part of an exceptional group, and someone says, there's no difference <laughs> between you two people. Paul just cuts them down here. And then he says, for the verse many of us know, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so I played around with this verse a little bit. I didn't know if it would be helpful for us um, to think of people in different categories um, as all caught. We're all caught. And one's not, it's not like Catholics up here and evangelicals or vice versa. There is no difference between a Catholic and an evangelical for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no difference between a Lutheran and a Mennonite. I thought those were pretty different, so I put them together. My apology to any Mennonites who are here. I feel real bad for you. Uh, there's no difference. Between, <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's no difference between a Lutheran and a Mennonite, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no difference between a white settler and a First Nations person, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no difference between a straight person and a queer person, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Paul creates this great kind of identifying mark of the church. We are all stuck and battling against this cosmic power of sin that threatens to pull everybody down. We're all the same in that way. And so that Paul's trying to make a unifying 
argument to the people in Rome. And so um, the next thing we learn is that, and this is a really encouraging sermon because it's all about this. Next thing you learn is we are all the enemies of God. So I'm sorry, it's a bit dark. Uh, and maybe I would, it would be, be better to say we were at one time the enemies of God. And I don't really love Paul's point here, and I have some Riley energy about this, but it is in the text, so I'm going to wrestle with it a bit. And I think there is something to ponder here, something to work with. And maybe this language is so strong because, as I said before, the division in the Roman church is so strong. It's so pitted. Paul seems to be trying to get through the self-righteousness, the self-importance of certain members in the church. And I suspect to get through to the elite power brokers in each group. So he says in 510, he says this, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life while we were God's enemies? Isn't that weird? I, I find that a bit of a, I don't know, I find that a little weird to read and, and engage with that. And it reminded me of another passage in the book of John, and I'll just read this one. And it sounds quite similar, even though there's, there's a long time between both of these books being written. And it says this in John 15, 13 to 16a, it says, and these are the words of Jesus. He says, greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. It almost sounds like the exact same passage, very similar words. Says, then he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends enemy we are all stuck challenge but now i've come with my strong love to overcome that boundary so we can become friends um so i'll just read that verse again no longer do i call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing but i've called you friends for for all things that i've heard from my father i've made known to you you did not choose me but i chose you man the power of God's love is strong to love his enemies that's quite something um, I have friends who are treated as enemies of the church and some of them no longer have anything to do with the church and perhaps if their antagonists remembered that they were also at one time enemies of God they would have learned to love their enemies like God loves his enemies I love the way Stanley Hauervoss talking about this says this he says about this he says God's love is not a sentimental love rather this love is a radical politics that challenges the world's misappropriation of God's good gifts that's a killer quote and it because it's a quote for the church do we misappropriate God's good gifts in the way we relate to the world, in the way we relate to each other. He goes on to say this, Christ being the embodiment of God's love means the disciples cannot know love apart from loving one's enemies. That we can't even know the full truth of what God's love is like unless we too love like our God. 
so I'll read the whole quote again. Christ being the embodiment of God's love means that the disciples cannot know love apart from loving one's enemies because that is precisely what God has done regarding us. We are God's enemies. So he doesn't use past tense. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little mixed on that. But uh, yet God would love us even coming to die for us. It's powerful. God's love is so strong. How of us kind of suggests that this kind of love is too intimate for us. We, it's too uncomfortable because it's, it's so strong, it's so committed that we, that we as humans in, in this bondage of sin don't kind of like you're like juggling like greased oranges or I don't know what, what's hard to juggle. Just help me out here. But whatever's really, what? Anything's hard to juggle. Okay. It's like juggling anything. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that wasn't in my script, by the way. That was ad lib. Uh, so, um, so why does Paul teach this about love, enemies, about the web of sin that we're all caught in? Even this grace, this huge grace, he's creating identity markers for the church to come together to be the church of Christ. These are the things that unite the church, is humility and self-awareness and truth and striving towards release from this, from these sins that kind of pull us back, like Truth and Reconciliation Day, and reaching, trying to reach, even in our feeble love, like, God, make us like you. Like, we are trying. Um, and so that's why Paul wants the church to unify in this. So Paul's not teaching about this idea of God overcoming the distance between humanity and him so that it can lead the Romans to a kind of Roman, uh, kind of a brand new Roman Christian exceptionalism. This is not what he's up to. Paul had already participated in a group like this, the Pharisees. And he was like, like I don't want to do that. That is a dead end. And he says, and we'll close with this, if you want to boast and brag about something or someone, do it about God. Boast and brag, this is the church call. Do this about God. And in verse 2, there's just two examples, but there's a bunch in here. The word That's the word I thought was weird in the NASB because it says exult. Like, who knows how to exult? It's just a weird kind of word, or it sounds weird to me. Uh, but it says, we exult in hope of the glory of God. So that's what Paul, he's not saying I'm boasting in myself or we're boasting in I'm boasting in God. God is awesome. And then he says in verse 11, we exalt also in God. Amen. Amen.